0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church podcast. We are a Bible based church at Peterborough, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people who are far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. In today's episode, Pastor Nathan is bringing part eight of the Book of James series called Time and Money. Time and money, the two things that we never seem to have enough of. As James begins to wrap up his letter, he'll remind us that time and money belong to God, and what we do with his resources matters a lot. With that, let's hand it over to Pastor Nate with part eight of his Book of James series, Time and Speaking Money. This morning, so it's found in James 4, starting in verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit.
1: and, uh, yeah, once again, just thanks to our, our tech team that have been working behind the scenes for the last two years to help make online church possible and to, to make our services accessible to so many people. It's, a, it's one of those jobs that nobody knows you're doing it until something goes wrong. You're like the health and safety guy at work, you know. <laughs> Who's that weird person with the clipboard? And then when something goes wrong, everyone just, yeah, it's their problem. It's going to be one of those mornings. So welcome, everybody. Uh, My name's Nathan, and uh, today we're in part 8 of a 10-week message series in uh, the book of James. We're walking through this New Testament letter of James. Uh, It's five chapters. We're kind of doing half a chapter each week. If you're loving this series, I'm sorry, there's only today and two more weeks after this. And if you're not loving it, hey, in a few weeks we're going to be moving on to Easter. And that's all great, too. I'm glad glad to see uh, so many folks here and to see your faces. It's wonderful. Um, Today, uh, we're going to continue in chapter 4. If you were here with us last week, then I'll give you the brief outline of... We looked at James chapter 4 verses 1 to 12 last week, and this is kind of the summary. The human heart is evil and tends in the wrong direction. That was kind of the assertion that fights and quarrels are caused by our evil motives. And we've been unfaithful to God, but the good news is God is gracious. He gives more grace. And if we're humble... And if we come to Him, we will find a Father who loves us, whose arms are wide open, who will receive us in spite of our flaws and our unfaithfulness. And what happens is once we receive that grace from God, then true repentance is stirred in our hearts. And the way we treat people changes. We stop judging and criticizing. So this was kind of the the outline of last Sunday. Now, uh, in verse 6, I kind of briefly glanced over something that I want to start with today. So in chapter 4, verse 6, we read this last week. It says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a really key theme that's going to keep coming up through today's um, message. When we lift ourselves up, when we make ourselves important, that's pride. God opposes us. He'll actually push us back down. But if we are humble, he gives us grace. So if we lower ourselves, if we come under his authority, when we come uh, with a humble heart, uh, this is really important. Our posture towards God really really does matter. And then he goes on to say this in the next verse. And this is the part we skipped over last week. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. I think we understand what that means. It means surrender your life to God. What does he want me to do? I'm going to do that. Honor him. Do the right things. But then there's this resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And I didn't want to get into this last week, but I think it's, it's worth taking a moment uh, to think about uh, what does it mean to resist the devil? What does it mean to resist we all know what submission to God looks like, but what does it mean to resist the devil? Because again, um, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many of you have seen the devil recently. No hands are going up. <laughs> You're like I, I saw him in somebody, but I didn't see him. Um uh, resist what does the devil even look like? And like for a lot of people, when I say when I talk about the devil or Satan, what comes to mind is this little red guy with a pointy tail and a pitchfork. Like, that's what comes to mind, which is crazy, because that's not what the Bible says at all about the devil. That's, like, we're getting our theology from cartoons. Like, how bad is that? And if you actually open up the Bible and read what you discover, the, the things that it does say about Satan, Lucifer, is that he's actually an angel. That he's an angel of light. That he's beautiful. That he's a musician. Like, everybody loves musicians. You picture this big, beautiful angel of light with long locks of hair and electric guitar. You know, you're like, ah, uh, you took it too far, Pastor. Maybe, but it's way closer than what you thought a few minutes ago. So Satan is, he's, he's, he's not just an angel. See, God created angels before he created humans, okay? And angels are spiritual beings that are there to serve God and to worship God, and they're war- many of them are warriors. So you have angels that are, like, you see them in the Bible doing things, and they're, like, doing battle for the Lord and all this and cool stuff, right? So angels are, like, powerful, they're servants of God, And what we learn about Satan is that before he became Satan, before he fell from heaven, he was actually an archangel, which is like a general among the angels. And he was beautiful, and he was talented, and he thought so much of himself that he said, I will ascend to heaven, and I will sit on the throne, of I'll be like God. And God's like, no, you stepped out of your place. And so that pride and arrogance, he gets shoved out of heaven, and with him, other angels go, fallen angels, and we call them demons. So again, we see these creepy demons, they're fallen angels. And the thing that makes them evil is their agenda. And the thing that makes Satan evil is that if you saw Satan, you might not recognize him. You'd be like, whoa, it's an angel. And maybe not. Because he'll, he'll appear as something. He's the dangly bait to appear and then twist everything around. That's kind of how, how he works. And so again, when people think about resisting Satan, it's like, how do I resist him? You know, what's he, what's he trying to do, right? Like it's I don't, I don't go to satanic church. I don't have a pentagram in my house don't sacrifice cats, so I'm good. But when I was a kid, no, I I, I should explain that. Everyone knows I don't like cats a lot. Um, Everybody knows that. But when I was a kid, it was like, this was part of like satanic rituals. They would sacrifice cats. At least that's what they told me. I've never been to a satanic ritual, so I don't know. Um, The point I'm trying to make is we think that like resisting Satan is like this stuff that is like, Satan wants you to be a murderer and like... You know all this guy and of course, he would love that if you got incarcerated and took people's lives because he's a thief and a stealer. But uh, in, re, in reality, uh, what's really important is that God has created and we talked about this last week He's created you and me to be in a relationship with him. And the, and the closest thing I think we can come to is probably thinking of it through the relationship of human relations. So like as a parent to a child, like God loves us that way. Where, where God wants to be in a relationship with us, it's personal and deep and meaningful. And he wants us to trust Him and He wants us to submit to Him, right? So you get this, this image. And what does Satan want to do? Satan's goal. This is really important, right? Because Satan's goal, you would think, is to have you do atrocities and all that stuff. And sure, it is. But really, it's it's much more refined than that. It's really this. This is the general truth: to keep you from God. And he's happy if he can keep you from God. And if it means drug addiction, so you blow up your mind. If it means doing some great crime, so you're locked up for the rest of your life, that works. But if it's just hobbies, if it's money, if it's relationships you shouldn't be in, he'll take that too. If it's just that you trust in everything but God, he's like, great, perfect. If he can keep you from God, that's his goal. Just that simple. So when James says, resist the devil, what's he talking about? Resisting anything that would keep you from God. And what's the number one thing that's going to keep you from God? Pride. Right? What's the number one thing that's going to keep you from God? Doubting him. I mean, when Satan appeared uh, in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve, what did he do? He tried to get them to doubt God. He says, did God really say that? You go, oh. Imagine if one of my kids, I was like, hey guys, don't do this. And then one of the kids comes along, the other kid and says, did dad really say that? You know he didn't want you to do that because he doesn't want you to have fun, right? Like, that's that's what he did. And Adam and Eve are like, oh, maybe. And they begin to doubt God's love for them and his faithfulness and what he said was true. And he's just twisting. And what does he want to do? He wants to divide the relationship. And he was successful in dividing Adam and Eve from God because of their sin. Right? That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to separate us. And so that's why uh, when James is talking about like selfish ambition and jealousy, these things that exist in our heart that actually drive a wedge in our relationship with God and one another, those are the ways that we're going to be resisting Satan. Okay, you guys with me? Everybody say, I'm with you, Pastor. All right. Um, So here's the big question we're going to be asking today. And uh, the question is simply this, what am I trusting in? Now, this isn't always apparent on the surface, okay? Uh, A lot of people would say, oh, I'm trusting in God or I'm trusting in whatever. But what am I trusting in? Uh, What is my life being built upon? What what is the thing that I believe isn't moving so that I can kind of plan and prepare my future? And today, James is going to suggest two things uh, that many people trust in and they're extremely dangerous. Okay, now here are the two things. Okay, time and money. And both of these things are good in and of themselves. Who wants more time? I do. I want lots of time. Who wants more money? (laughs) <laughs> okay, <laughs> A few of you are like, no, I don't want more money. Okay, we can we can help you with that. Okay. We all want more time and money, but what James is going to say is that even though time and money are good things, in fact, time and money are gifts from God to us, they can also trip us up. They can also be the source of arrogance and pride. The more time we have and the more money we have, the more arrogance we have, the more we think we're in control. That's true. And so these things that are gifts from God that are good can become uh, problematic. A couple of biblical principles before we jump into the text. And uh, there's, there's more than this, but well, let me just touch on these two. Before we get into time and money, the first one is this, that we are stewards. We are stewards. Now, you may not know, like, stewards, nobody uses that word. We could say managers. A steward is a better word because, like, in, in, in the ancient times, uh, someone, let's say, owned a business... And they would have a manager of the business and they would say, Here's the keys, here's the bank accounts, you have signing authority, do it. Like, you, I'm giving you this business, but it's still mine, but you're going to run it for me. And I'm going to go away and do other things, and I'm going to come back, and then you're going to report, and you're going to give me my money and my business back, and all that stuff. So uh, it was a really, it was like you acted as though you owned it, but you knew you didn't. Does that make sense? The Bible teaches, if you can go back to that, the Bible teaches that we are stewards. We're stewards. That everything that we have, Belongs to God. It's a, it's a big principle to wrap your mind around, and we could do a series on it at some point. But everything belongs to God. Like, the money in my wallet, it's my money. Like, it belongs to me and my wife. But it's actually God's money. Uh, we've been blessed. with four kids. Uh, I say they're my kids. But I know in my mind they're God's kids. And when they're bad, I'm like, they're not my kids. I say that sometimes. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. But it's the principle, it's like, they're, they're not mine, they're his. And so sometimes, when I forget that they're his, and they're doing stuff they shouldn't, I want to take control and fix it, and I'm like, ah. And I'm wrestling with what's my responsibility as a parent, and, and how much is this, this trusting in God that they're his kids. You guys, you, you, you understand what I'm saying. So we're stewards. It's a really, really big principle. And a lot of people go to church, and they do the Bible, and they, go to ch- and they give, and they do different things, but they never come to grips with the fact that they're stewards. That what they have doesn't actually belong to them, it belongs to God. And no matter how much stuff you have, when you die, it all stays behind. You go into eternity, and your stuff stays here. And it belongs to God, and it gets passed on to other people, and all of that. So we're stewards. That's a key principle. The second one is this. God is in control, not us. Now, this is the Crazy thing about reading a book like the Bible that has, you know, 4,000 years of history in it, and then 2,000 years since this was written. So you've got at least 6,000 years of human history that we can kind of examine. And what you, dis- what you discover, if you look at it correctly, is that God is in control, not us. And even though people make decisions and we get to choose what pants we're going to wear, we get to choose where we go to school and who we marry and all those kinds of things, that God is still sovereign and he's over it all and he's lifting up this nation and pushing that one down and allowing things to happen and stopping it. So God has this, he's like overseeing it all. And that's a huge idea. Because then if we know that, we're not freaking out every time something changes in the environment. We're like, we're looking out and we're going, okay, God is in control not us. So these are two really important principles because James is going to address these two topics of time and money. And we have to remember stewards and God is in control. Okay. You guys, you guys good with that? You got those? Let's jump into the first verse that we're looking at today. It's found in verse 13. He says this, come now you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Okay, so they got these big plans. Uh, they're going to travel. Now, this is really important that I, I point this out. Historically, James is talking to the upper class here. Poor people didn't travel for a year. Didn't you know? Take a boat to Asia and buy spices and silks, and then uh, all the way back. So a year long, so that they would have all these you know special objects to sell and make all this profit. So this was a rich man's game. Poor people lived day by day, hand to mouth. Like if they could have food, they ate it. Right. One of the things that you discover, um, it's really hard to define whether someone's rich or poor, right? Because I think most of us in the room would be like, yeah, I'm kind of poor. But then if we look and compare ourselves with the rest of the world, it's like, yeah, we're really rich. And one of the ways you can determine whether someone's really poor or really rich is to look at things like, uh, do you have options? Because I'll tell you, poor people don't have options. Like, They don't wake up in the morning like, which of my 12 shirts should I put on? They don't come to the dinner table and be like, Steak again? I wanted chicken and couscous. Is that a thing? I think it's a thing. We, When you have options, when you have options, that's a sign of wealth. Wealthy people are like, I think I'm going to go to Milan next month. Poor people don't do that. They're not like, where am I going to be in August? Probably the cottage. No, they don't. Like, they're just, it's like, I don't even know where I'm going to be tomorrow. Like, my whole life, I'm just like day to day living that way. That's how. So, you know, we don't think of ourselves as rich, but we have so many options. We are so blessed. And James is talking to people who have a lot of options and. He, he says this in the next verse, he says in verse 14, he says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You don't even know, he's like, you've got your plan, you've got your game plan, and you've got your money to make it all happen, and you've got your game plan, but he's like, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's he going to talk about? James is like reminding them that life is uncertain. You can't bank on the future you can't bank on the future uh, i remember when I, uh, over 20 years ago my wife and i it was it was uh, the next day was our anniversary i was getting ready to we were going to go out for dinner it was going to be our 2 year anniversary you know our wedding anniversary and and then that morning a bunch of terrorists decided to fly planes into buildings you'll remember it as 911 but i remember and those of you that were around and remember that day the fallout so in the year or so the afterwards people were shaken up because it was like We thought we were safe and secure. We didn't think things like that could happen to us, near us. And all of a sudden, a war on terror that was going on over the ocean came near us. And it was like, oh my, the future is unpredictable. The last two years have been another moment like that. There seems to be moments every decade or so. The last two years with the pandemic, everyone had plans. I'm going to launch a business. I'm going to travel here. I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, the pandemic hits and everybody's adjusting. And you realize hard it is to plan when you don't know what the future holds, right? And these moments should be reminders that there's way more out of our control than in our control. You with me? And when we're shaken by moments like this, we really have, uh, we really have a couple of options. You can throw those up. When I'm not in control, option number one, and this is where we usually default, try to get control. Just try to get control. No, and we could talk about the last few years, talk about the last 20 years, ways that people try to get control when things are out of control. And sometimes we do it through controlling the people and the environments around us. Sometimes we attack others. But all of it is just simply us trying to get our footing and get control where there is no control. The second thing, and this is the thing I would suggest we do, is trust God. I mean, this is this is what the Bible speaks about page after page after page is this idea of trusting God. There was a, There's a song that I... A song that I used to, as a chorus that we used to sing in church, and some of you may know it. Uh, but it goes like this. <clears throat> I'll try and sing it for you. Me, me, me. Mm, okay. Uh, it goes like this. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. There's the line. Because I know he holds the future. Life is worth the living just because he lives. And some of you know that song, but that line jumped out at me as I was looking at these passages this, this confidence that it's God who holds my future. I can tell you, um, I've, got, I've got money in Wall Street, but Wall Street doesn't hold my future. I've got 20 plus years invested in my kids, but my kids are not my future. He holds my future. My future is not in the hands of our elected government. I don't care which party is in power. He holds my future, not a political party. NATO does not hold our future. He holds our future. You see what I'm saying? It's so easy for us to quickly turn and begin to look for something solid to put our trust in. And James is going to remind us over and over again, everything is is changing, and the only thing that we should be putting our trust in is God. He's going to say in the next verse, in verse 14, what is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. We live in Canada. You breathe on a cold day and you see your breath and then it's gone. And James is like, that's how quickly our lives go. That's how quickly time passes. Anybody notice how fast time's going? Seems like the older you get, the faster it goes. Is that, is that just me? Is that a middle-aged thing? I don't know. It just seems to get faster and faster and faster. Like, I remember bringing, I was talking to a couple friends yesterday and they're like younger dads. They have younger kids. And they were remarking about what it felt like to walk out of the hospital with your first child. Because you're leaving the hospital where the professionals are, right? The, the, the maternity nurses and the doctors, and they like know how to do stuff. And you're like carrying this baby out in a little seat. And you're like, they're really going to let us leave? Like, <laughs> they didn't even do a police check. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't volunteer without a police check, but you can carry that kid out of the hospital and take it home and ruin it. Um, We tried not to, but I remember like taking the kid only, just terrified. Like we could kill this thing. Like we don't know. Like if it starts choking, what do we do? I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Right. It's terrifying. And so we were just talking about that. And then I remember like a few months after we sat down with a financial planner. It's like, you know, you should really consider an RESP. And for the young people in the crowd, it's a, a registered education savings plan. I think that's what it means. And, and essentially what it is, is you can start putting money away from, from a young age, from the time your kids are born, and the government kind of matches some of the money and so it can grow, so that when they get to 18, they can go to university or college, post-secondary education. So like, this is a good plan. And I, and I looked at the financial advisor, and I'm like, kid can't even hold his head up. <laughs> like, i got lots of time, right? Because it's like, I've got time. We all think we have time. And I thought to myself, oh, I'll take care of that. We'll start one of those tomorrow. Because tomorrow is the best time to do anything, right? Like, when does every diet start? <laughs> tomorrow, right? It's like, tomorrow I'm going to be generous. Tomorrow I'm going to exercise. Tomorrow, right? Or next month. Next month, that's that's reasonable. I can do that, right? And so everything just kind of gets pushed off to the future because there's lots of time. And James is like, no, there isn't. Your life is like a breath. If there's something worth doing, do it now. If God is asking something of you, do it now. I can tell you if, if you, if you have someone you need to forgive, do it today because you may not have tomorrow. If there's something God's been after you to do, do it now. Why? Because we just, it's arrogance to presume that we have tomorrow. It's like, oh, no problem. Think about how frail life is. We basically survive because our lungs expand and contract, bringing oxygen in our body. Like this simple thing called breathing, we don't even think about it, right? Sometimes when we're nervous, we stop breathing. And then, oh yeah, I got to remember to breathe. And it's amazing that we're all still here. Because, like, two minutes of that breathing stopping and you're a goner. Something around that. Okay? The point is, it's so frail. Like, there's no guarantee that we have tomorrow. James is just reminding us, like, okay, you got your big plans. And. And you're presuming that the time this next year is yours and it's guaranteed, and you're making your plans without God. That's the real issue. Instead, he says, You ought to say this. You ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, he says, um, You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now, here's what James is saying. In the next, uh, I got a little slide here. It says, God is not against plans. Uh, some people uh, think they're being spiritual by not having plans, okay? And they, they misquote this verse that we've been reading, right? If the Lord wills. They misquote it because they think God's against plans. Like, it has to be if the Lord But actually what he's against is pride. Okay, that's what he's against. He's against pride, not plans. In fact, God set a plan in motion from the creation of the world to save us. And throughout the Scriptures, you see men of God, even Jesus, He had a plan to go to the cross. There's all these plans. So God's not against plans, He's against pride. He's against us making plans without Him in them. He's against us making plans without consulting the one who's given us the time and the money to execute our plans. And so this phrase, if the Lord wills, you throw that up on the next slide. The Lord wills. Again, I grew up in church, so I can pick on church people. That's kind of a rule. You can always make fun of your own group. Just don't make fun of other groups. So I can make fun of the Christians. Um, I grew up in church and a lot of people use this phrase. And of course what James is trying to say is not tack this onto every sentence and every commitment or you're unspiritual. What he's talking about is a hard attitude of like everything I do belongs to God and I'm going to consult him and I want to make sure that what I'm doing is his will. I don't want to just assume that it's all mine and I can do what I want. And instead what we do, again, Christians are great at this. We take these words and we tack them onto everything. It's like, so you coming to church tomorrow? if the Lord wills. You know what that really means is, if I feel like it, that's a good translation. If I don't sleep in. <laughs> right? So if the Lord wills gets thrown around a whole lot, right? It's like, well, oh, yeah, you know, someday I'm going to give if the Lord wills. Like, no, I'm pretty sure he wants you to be a generous person and you can start small. And, you know, again, one of the things we always assume is like, oh, well, you know, if I get a 10% raise, then I'll start giving. No, you won't because it, if you're not generous now, you're not gonna be generous with more. You know, one of the things you know, one of the things I've, I've realized in talking to people is like, nobody has extra money. I don't care if you're 14 and you got your own job and no expenses, like, I got no money, I got oh and you talk to somebody who's got three houses and a boat, and it's like I don't got nobody has money. And so you have to plan to be generous. Like, but I thought God didn't like plans. No, he doesn't like plans that are made without him. He doesn't like plans that are self-serving and only about you, okay? <laughs> so, if the Lord wills is one of those statements. And I love, this is where he's going to end this section on time. He says this, so whoever knows, verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I love this because this counteracts the whole, like, the Lord wills thing, right? Like, are you going to come and help? Oh, if the Lord wills. That's just, a, like, it's, a, it's an easy way out. And James like, actually, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. If you can't even say, if the Lord wills, if you know that's what the Lord wills, do it. Just do it. If you can help, help. If you have time, just do it. And if you don't, it's, it's a sin. Here, there's one more statement. There's one more statement. Okay, can I just keep picking on the church people for just a second? It's so much fun for me. If the Lord wills, and here's a beauty, I'll pray about it. Over the years, I've heard so many people say this. Now, first, I should preface this because someone's going to be like, he doesn't believe in the power of prayer. Yes, I do. We ought to pray about every. I mean, Jesus prayed so much. He was, he was always in prayer. But it's interesting to me that he would spend all night praying and you would come out and crowds of people would come and they'd be like, heal me. And he wasn't like, I'll pray about it. Jesus, what should I do? I'll pray about it. In fact, Jesus never uttered those words, not once. Neither did Paul, neither did Peter. You actually won't find these words in the Bible at all. There's a whole bunch of things we're supposed to pray about. We're supposed to pray for others. We're supposed to pray for wisdom. We're supposed to pray for boldness. We're supposed to pray for forgiveness. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. We're supposed to pray for our leaders. We could build a huge list of all the things we're supposed to pray about, but it is never one of them. If it's the Lord's will and you know it, like if it says here what to do and you're like, well, I'll pray about it. You don't need to pray about it. Just do it. Just do it. If you have time and the resources and God's given them to you, just just go ahead. So um, no one's going to want to say I'm going to pray about it anymore. <laughs> That's funny. Because usually when people say I'll pray about it, you know what they really mean? No. Or maybe I'll get back to you later. Something like that. Got really quiet in the room. That means I'm striking a chord uh, or I'm into heresy. I don't know which. Um, So we're moving from time, and then the other subject today was money. And uh, we're going to talk for just a second about money. Again, the overarching question is what am I trusting in? Am I trusting that I have more time and that I can kind of, you know, it's amazing because, again, we just assume we have time. It's like, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing right now, and, and maybe next year or after I graduate from school or after I'm married, then I'm going to be faithful to God and I'm going to repent and I'm going to get my life in order. It's amazing. We just assume we have the time. And James is like, don't do that. So he's warned. Now we're going to talk about money. Now what's interesting about this, as I said, is um, wealth was um, so- something different than it, than it is today in this, sense, in this sense. In those days, this is important historical. In those days, the, the rich people that James is about to address, and I want to read through the text so you can see. The rich people who's going to address have gotten their wealth not by hard work, saving, and investing, but by ripping off the poor people. So I'm going to get laborers to come and take care of all my fields, and then I'm not going to cut them a check at the end of the week knowing they can't even take me to court. So I hope, again, we've already established most of us are rich by the world standards, and I hope none of us have acquired whatever we have by taking advantage and stealing from others. So with that being said, there's still some warnings for all of us for the wealth that we do have. Let's read through the text and then I'll, I'll add some commentary at the end. Come now you rich. Who's the rich people? Us we are. Thank you. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And what again what James is referring to is the judgment of God for how you got your wealth and how you've treated or mistreated people. The riches your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. I don't have time today, but James is referring back to some of the Old Testament prophets like Amos and others uh, where the, the rich were oppressing the poor and God was bringing judgment on them. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. It's amazing how the wealth that we have today corrodes. Like you can buy a brand new car and it's like beautiful and you get off a lot. Two years later, it's worth half what you paid for it. <laughs> so the value is corroded and then the body starts to rust and the tires crack and all that stuff. So this is true. The things that we're putting our trust in and, and trusting in just sort of dissipate. And he says, it will be evidence against you. You have laid up treasures in the last days. This is a, a reference to um, the parable of the, um, the rich fool in Luke 12. Okay, uh, Maybe some of you heard about it. So this guy is wealthy. And he's got this barn full of grain. So it's food. It's money. It represents provision. And he's like, I've got so much food. I don't even need any more food for the rest of my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barn and build a bigger one so I can store more. And the end of the parable is, you fool, you didn't know that this very night your life would be expected of you. So all of a sudden, this person that thought he was smart is going to realize that he's been storing it up for nothing. And um, let's continue on with the verse. Behold, he says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. This is the idea of justice. So there are all these people that didn't get paid, and you're like sitting back. There's this really cool text, actually. Can I read it to you? Um, I didn't do this in the first service. This is fun. Uh, Amos chapter 5. This is one of the references that, that James is making. So listen to this. He's talking to the wealthy of Israel in the Old Testament who are watching all of this happen and not doing, lifting a finger to help anybody. He says, Woe to you who lie on beds of ivory. Woo. Mine's made out of wood, but I'm just saying. And stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from their flock. And it just goes on. You're drinking from bowls and extravagant stuff. But you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So you're seeing all this stuff going on around you and you don't lift a finger to help. And you just think you've got it all made in the shape, And he proclaims judgment. So again, James is pointing back to this being like, don't, don't be like this. Don't, don't let your heart become cold to the needs around you and think that you're good. And you've stolen from others. Okay, next verse, verse 5. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, this is really important because um, this is this is talking about justice. Justice is a big justice and equity are big topics right now. I'm not going to get into it this morning, um, but the actual the Bible actually teaches that God is the God who brings justice. And so, for those who are oppressing others and stealing from others, we're going to be held accountable to God for that. And those who have suffered under the hands of others and had things taken from you, God will vindicate you. He will make the right wrong. This is powerful, right? This idea. And he goes on to say this, and this is where we'll wrap it up. Um, You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The last verse says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So once again, I hope that nobody, I hope that these verses aren't describing anyone listening to me today. Taking advantage of others and gathered for yourselves all this stuff and you're hoarding it and pushing everybody away. But there's probably a little bit of that in everybody's heart. And so the warning is like, hey, remember you're a steward. Remember that everything that God has given you is His and will be held accountable for it. I think Jace is going to come up and help me uh, close out the service. You know, uh, next Sunday, um, we're going to be turning the corner uh, as James begins to end his letter. And I'll tell you what the theme for next week is this. He's coming. Jesus is coming. The judge is coming. And what that means is that when Jesus arrives, he's that master coming back to you and I, who are the stewards, and he's going to ask questions like, what did you do with the time I gave you on this earth? What did you do with the money that I put in your hands? You go, well, I didn't have a lot. Someone else had more. It doesn't matter. What did you do with what I put in your hands? How did you treat the people that you in relationships with how did you care for the helpless around you what did you do that's the moment and he's reminding those who have oppressed you better mourn and weep now or you will mourn and weep later and next week he's going to encourage those who have been oppressed that a day is coming when God is going to make right everything that's been wrong to you and God will hold you and lift you up there's one last thing I want to share with you before I pray And we end our time together. Um, There's this interesting character. um, His name's David, King David. You guys know the story? David and Goliath. It's like one of the most famous stories. People who've never been to church know the story. What's so cool about the story is that David begins with this heart after God. He's this maybe 16-year-old young guy. And there's this giant named Goliath who represents an enemy nation, the Philistines. And he's basically making fun of the Israelite God, saying, Your God can't save you. You can't do anything. And when David hears this, he's so grieved. He's like, who is this Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? For him, it was personal. It was like, he's making fun of our God. And so David actually marches out onto the battlefield, this little young guy against this huge armored man, and he's got a slingshot with a stone. So, of course, you all know the end of the story, but otherwise you'd be like, he's in trouble. Because he's going out, and his only thing is this, like, live or die, I'm trusting God. And so David's story begins as one that is just so, you hold the future. You hold the future. And he's walking out towards this guy with his sling. You hold the future. And this is the right thing to do. So I'm doing it and I'm trusting you with it. And out he goes to face Goliath. Now, we know the story. He takes down Goliath. He marries the king's daughter. The king turns on him. He ends up running. He spends nearly 20 years in the wilderness, hiding in caves from his father-in-law. Some of you are like, that's better than living with your father-in-law. No, I'm kidding. But he's running, he's running, he's running. And like literally, and the whole time he has opportunities to kill his father-in-law. He has opportunities to do political things, to take power. And he's like, no, God will do it. I'm not. I'm trusting. He holds my future. He holds. And they're like, just, just kill your father-in-law. He's evil. He's like, no, God holds my future. I won't do it. Hey, we could just get this political coup and push him out of power. And he's like, no, God holds my future. So trusting God, just, this is the theme of David. This is why David is such a critical person in the biblical story. But something happens. After Saul is dead, and after David becomes king, for the first time, the nation of Israel has consolidated their borders. They live in safety. And because nobody is stealing and pillaging their land, they become wealthier. And David is able to build himself beautiful homes. He's able to have many wives. There's peace in the land. There's no more war he can eat steak every single night he's not living in a cave and it's now when he has time and money these things that god blesses him with that he steals another man's wife but there's another story that really always grabbed my attention there's this moment where david calls his generals and he says i want you to take a census which is basically just mean counting i want you to count the number of troops we have in israel I want to know how many troops we have on our northern borders and our eastern borders and our southern borders and our western. I want to know how many walled cities and how many chariots. I want to know how strong we are. Can you see the shift? And all of a sudden, this guy who was willing to go up against a Goliath with a stone because he trusted that God held his future is looking around going, what do I have to do battle with? And how strong are we? And what can we do in our strength? and God brings a plague on the land, and people are dying by the thousands. And I'm like, God, why would you take that one act of counting the soldiers so seriously? And the reason why is because he's lifted himself up in pride, and he had stopped trusting in God. And the ramifications were huge and enormous. So James, as he's telling us today, time and money are gifts from God. We don't know how much we have of either. We don't know how long they'll last but they're placed in our hands for a moment. And we need to remember, each and every day, He holds the future. Submitting to Him, taking our time, our resources, and God, how would you have me use these in this moment? And in this way, we stay humble. You with me? Let me pray for us today. Father, thank you for the words of James. And uh, Lord, these warnings He gives are strong. They're strong. For those who like all of us, are so wealthy in this world, who have so many options, who have so much freedom by comparison. Help us not to squander the things you've given us, our time, our money, our opportunities, our education, our families, our jobs. And help us, Lord, to be see them as stewards, that we could use them for your glory, that we could use them to help those around us, that we would not turn a blind eye. Lord, that we would trust you. You and you alone hold our future. And maybe today, Lord, there's Some of us who have been, like David, beginning to lean in the direction of our own strength, our own resources, and forgetting the God who has held us through it all. May our hearts turn back towards you today, I pray. In Jesus' precious name.
0: Amen. Hey, that wraps it up from us here at Pathway Church. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. If you uh, keep up with us on all of our socials, our website is pathwaylife.com. Follow us on Instagram at pathwaylifechurch and facebook.com forward slash pathwaylife. Have a great week and we hope to see you real soon. Bye.